the reading for the passage I'm going to preach on this morning is taken from a section in the book of Ephesians that's referred to as the household codes. The reason being, when Christians originally showed up for worship, they didn't do so as rugged American individualists, but they showed up as entire households. What Paul is doing here in this section is he's addressing the constituent parts of the household. So he talks, first of all, to husbands and wives. Then he speaks to parents and children. Last of all, he speaks to slaves and their masters. Inevitably, the question that comes up is, is Paul condoning slavery? Why didn't Paul emancipate or call for the emancipation of all the slaves in the Roman Empire? The answer to that question is complex. I mean, it was the letter to Philemon that really functioned as the foundation from which eventually slavery was eradicated in the world. That would be part of my answer. But for the purposes of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, it's in, I, I want us to just to remember that Paul is he's not philosophizing here. He's not saying, hey, let's get together as a church and decide what we think about social structures of the first century. He's saying, very practically, what do we do on Monday morning? How do we go to our work? How do we live as a household? How do we do things in the institutions that already exist and live distinctively because of what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ? One other, I guess, preparatory word to note When you read through the literature of the day, you find out that household codes were not unique, that there were plenty of Greco-Roman authors, ethicists, who wrote household codes. But when they did, at least according to my research, whenever they did, they would never speak to the slaves directly. They were being, you know, why would anybody talk to slaves? They're just, the whole idea in the world was that slaves are nothing but living tools. And that's what Aristotle said. He said, some people... They just are are fit to be slaves. And if you were a freed man, there's no more reason for you to be a friend of a slave than there would be for you to be a friend of a chainsaw or of of a hammer. So it's significant here. I'm giving you the backstory big picture. Paul speaks directly to the slaves. And in so doing, he is dignifying them as human beings, which is what his contemporaries never would do. And here's what he says, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with the fear of the Lord, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, for that's what you are. You're slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Do not beat them. Do not whip them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven... And there is no favoritism with him. Uh, My first job, and I think I told you about this before, I was a sophomore in high school, and my first job was working 
on a golf course. My father was a golf cart salesman, and you would think that as such, he would have been able to land me one of the cushier golf course jobs where you're the guy at the clubhouse attendant who cleans the club heads and gets paid lots of money for cleaning clubs. But instead, Dad ended up landing me a job with the uh, landscape maintenance crew in Arizona in the summer. So I would get up at 4 o'clock every morning, or what felt like 4 o'clock, maybe it was a little later, but to get to the course before the heat of the day, we'd end up drinking you know, three gallons of water a day. With, with every golf course, you know that there's a, a far end to the course. We call it the 13th hole is the farthest distance away from the clubhouse or from the maintenance shed. Well, when we would go out and work on the 13th hole, the, the white guys, we, we would just kind of take it easy <laughs> out there, kind of curl up underneath the shade of a tree, like cats, and, and rest a little bit, because we were on the, nobody could see us on the 13th hole. But when I worked on the Latino crew, when I was you know, working with the, the Mexican guys, uh, they were tough dudes, and we, they, they put me through the paces. They were going to show this pasty 14-year-old white kid, what it means to put in a, a hard day's work. And that, I mean, that's why I think my dad ended up giving that to me as my first job. There's there some great principles to be had um, working with them. And there's some great, um, there, this passage is golden, is it not? Like if, if we as Christians genuinely believed and implemented the stuff that's written here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, we would be the best employees in the world. We'd be the, the best bosses in the world. We, there would be a tremendous demand for Christian workers in the city of Boise. We would pave the way of the gospel throughout our whole city if we could just put into practice the things that, that are spoken of here. I, I've heard this referred to as an amplifier passage, sort of a so much more passage, that if Paul says to slaves that, that slaves could have like meaningful valuable work, if their jobs could be meaningful and valuable, like how much more for us as free employees could that be true of us? And the same would, happen, would apply to masters. If masters are to treat their slaves with respect and, and dignity, without a prideful spirit, like how much more should we as employers treat our people in, the, in those ways? So let's look at it. Going to verse 5. We'll start out there. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with, with respect and, and fear. Maybe the, maybe the fear there is a reference to the fear of the Lord. But slaves are told by the Apostle Paul to do their work courteously rather than disdainfully. They are to do their work. Don't do just a minimum of work to kind of skirt by, but... Do your work wholeheartedly, he says. He uses that, the heart word a couple of times. Or with, sincerely from your heart. Don't just do your work to avoid penalty, Paul says. Uh, and work hard, not only when your supervisor is observing you, but you're always, always to be working hard. And the, the, Why is that? The implication is because your supervisor is always observing you. That Jesus is always observing you. There is no 13th hole to be found 
in, in the world that he's created. Uh, that's a good first principle right there. I was talking between services to one of my friends downstairs, and he said, yeah, it's, it's so hard to, to manage some people in my work group. I've got a guy who we pay him for 40 hours of work, and the dude's on his phone all the time. <laughs> and he's, he's totally, he's checked, he, he works probably 25 hours, but he's totally checked out for, for much of it. I mean, Paul would say to you, don't be that guy. Because you, you're always being, you're always being surp, uh, supervised. Somebody's always observing you. Another way he might put it, or we could put it, some of you watch the uh, CBS television show Undercover Boss. <laughs> right? The CEO of some large company ends up dressing up as an ordinary employee, and he kind of goes to the bottom rung of his corporation or his organization, and he kind of they put him through the paces and teach him what it's like to function on the, the very bottom level of it all. And that boss is always observing you. Question to ask, I hope this is a legitimate question. If Jesus Christ was like undercover bossing you this week, what would you do different? What would you be embarrassed about that he would see? I mean, some of you would be like, well, I, I wouldn't change anything. I'd do it exactly as I, I work, I'd work no differently than I work already. But I think for many of us, if you caught, we would not want that to be shown on television. <laughs> we wouldn't want our boss to see. No, your, your master is always there, Paul's saying. Your master is, is always seeing. And that, therefore, verse 7, you are to serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men. For the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is, is slave or free. Paul is relativizing all human masters and bosses. Let me say that again. I didn't say it very well. Paul, what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 6 is he is relativizing all human bosses, all human masters. I, if Paul was in the pulpit today, Paul would say, I want you to do a good job for your master. Yeah. But I don't want you ever to believe that he is really your master. Your boss is not really your boss. I want you to, to do a good job for him, but, but rather go, than going to work for somebody who you think is a lousy manager, who is unfair and nepotistic and doesn't make wise judgments and is difficult to work for, I actually want you to go in on Monday believing that you are working for a different man. And once you internalize that principle as a Christian worker, then I think it kind of opens up the whole rest of the passage. It doesn't. It enables you to be courteous to bad managers. You can be courteous and respectful and not disdainful. We have a number of people at All Saints who work in, um, at call centers here in Boise. It, it frees you up to be courteous to those people on the other end of the line who are, people are terrible, you know, when they're anonymous. <laughs> when they're behind a computer terminal or when they're on the other end of a cell phone, they are, they're brutal. But if you understand, you're working for a different boss. So, uh, the place I, some of you <clears throat> work at the hospital, how hard it is to work underneath hospital management. And if I, just, I have to think that it would free you up if you believed that your boss 
And your management is not really your management, so to speak. Wouldn't that help? Another implication of Ephesians chapter 6 is like once you internalize this principle, it's, it tremendously dignifies even non-dignifiable work. Like he's, remember, he's saying this to slaves. And think how, how menial some of the jobs would have been that, that slaves were, were expected to perform. How even maybe humiliating it would be to have to perform some of these jobs. And yet he's, it's, it's kind of like this. So this is the illustration I'd give for you golfers. You would appreciate this. You would not want to serve as my caddy. There's nothing dignifying about serving as the caddy for Brad Cheney. And, and there's nothing particularly impressive about you know, watching me play golf. But if you got to be the caddy of Jack Nicholas, yeah, it wouldn't be so bad. If you were caddying for Phil Mickelson, there's, that would be an honor. <laughs> and there's a sense that even in non-dignifiable work, when you know that you're, when you know you're a real boss, that enables you to do that work with a sense of honor and nobility. Uh, so one of the questions I said earlier was, if Jesus was your undercover boss, or if he undercover bossed you, what would you be embarrassed about? And what would you do differently? That's the negative side. The positive side is, where would Jesus want you to be pushing back? What parts of the curse in your work environment would he want you to be resisting, pushing back? Where is there entropy that you can bring order to? Where can you use your gifts to serve other people and make their lives flourish? I know those are the questions that Jesus would would want you to be asking. Proverbs 25, verse 13, the proverb, uh, it says, 25, 13, a trustworthy worker is like the coolness of snow on a harvest day. He refreshes the life of his masters. A trustworthy worker is like the coolness of snow on a hot, harvest, dry, hard day. He refreshes his master. And I've got to think that Jesus Christ is refreshed when Christian employees are the people who are not cutting corners, who are working with integrity, who do not steal. I read that, that in America, the economic impact of employee theft is like $40 billion a year one of the gentlemen in our church, Bill Atkinson, who runs a security business, he says, my clients don't realize that the security stuff that we're providing them, it's not for the outside criminals, it's for the inside ones. Because like 95% of all theft is internal. But a trustworthy worker is like the coolness of snow on a harvest day. He refreshes the life of, uh, of his master. And so in a nutshell, what Paul is doing in Ephesians 6 is he's relativizing all bosses and masters. He's saying, I don't want you to ever think that he, he or she is your real master because all they are is your master in the earthly realm. And they're not going to be around in another, in another million years. That I want you to please the one master who's going to be here when all the other masters have faded away. So it, that's, the, that's the, the first part of the passage. The second part, what does Paul say to employers? Verse 9, masters or employers, treat your slaves in the same way. That is, with the same sense of respect and 
dignity. Do not threaten them. Probably one of the ways we could apply that is do not threaten them. Do not use guilt and coercion as your primary means of motivating your employees, but especially treat your slaves in the same way. Just as they are serving you and serving your interest as their employer, so you should be serving them and finding ways to promote their interests as, as, as people. I came across an interesting example of this this week. Uh, I guess the CEO of the Tyson Chicken Company is a Christian man. And back in 2000, he decided what, one of the ways that he was going to go about humanizing the work environment of his, his uh, employees was he was going to hire chaplains who would go down the assembly line in the, ch- in the chicken processing plant and talk to guys and say, you know, Bob, how you doing, man? Uh, how's, how's your wife? You want to get lunch together? You want to pray together? What can we, how can we be, they, today Tyson Chicken employs 115 chaplains of all things. Yeah. One of the, how, do, how can I humanize the work environment of my employees? One of the most important things you can do, those of you who are, are employers, is you really consider the re- what kind of hours you're asking them to work. I mean, if you're a 25-year-old kid, fresh out of college or your MBA program, I mean, you, you can work. You're single, you can work quite a bit longer. But, I mean, if you're the father of five kids, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's limitations of what you, you can do. <laughs> I don't know who I would be talking about. <laughs> I actually didn't even mean it that way. <laughs> like, nobody in the first service got that, <laughs> including me. <laughs> I'm sure that the Apostle Paul would say, you cannot see them merely in terms of productivity and output and worker. You've got to look behind that and see their, their lives and see, you know, that's a dad of, of four kids and he can't be working those shifts. Um, that's a mom, a single mom, and it really, I've got to do something to help her. She can't be, I think that's one area, you may disagree. The one that I really want to, stresses the I think the most important part of a, an employer in our environment a Christian employer any employer but a Christian employer has to be extremely conscientious of paying their workers a fair wage now the Bible is not an economics textbook obviously the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how employers must calculate the wages of their workers they they, uh, they just tell us that the, the wages must be fair. But it, well, I've noticed in, among Christian businessmen and women, that they believe that a wage is fair at basically whatever rate the market determines. Right. A, way, a salary should be considered inadequate only if it's below the, you know, the local market value and it's unable to attract a, a worthy Applicant, I am just not convinced that, that the Bible would agree. There are too many passages in the scripture which suggest that the, uh, the exploitation of workers is not merely that the, 
The hiring manager isn't paying them any wage. It's that he's not paying, paying them a, a truly just and equitable wage. A couple of passages that you might consider. Malachi 3.5, James 5.4. And, and consider this as a practical um, thought experiment. Let's say, suppose last week the free market priced a loaf of bread in Miami at $4.00. Miami's expensive to live in. Four bucks for bread. At the end of the week, a hurricane comes in and obliterates the place. The market might justify, market logic might justify then pricing the bread at not $4, but $400. And yet, that kind of profiteering is the very thing throughout the scriptures the Bible forbids. God widely condemns that is immoral because it is taking advantage of people who are living under deep duress and have no other alternatives available to them. I wonder if that's if something analogous is not true of, of adults and, and low-wage jobs. You think about the people who have to, in our economy, who have to take you know, the lower rungs of employment. Those are usually people who are operating out of tremendous distress. Those are usually people who don't have a wealth of different uh, job options available to them. They don't have alternatives. They're often forced to take bad jobs just as a way to survive or just as a way to keep the wolf at bay. You think about the type of people that, okay, I'll pick on Walmart, for instance. uh, They've done research. The average hourly employee wage at Walmart is $12.17. At least that's what it was like in 2014. But you know that one of the ways that Walmart tries to keep their costs, their labor costs controlled and down is they will hire as few full-time paid employees as possible. They try to keep everybody on part-time. If you, do, if you change the calculus to, to consider that, the actual Walmart... Sales associate is going to make about $8.81 an hour. Now you could step back and say, well, it's the market. That's what the market dictates. You know, Walmart is the world's largest private employer, and U.S. taxpayers end up spending about $6 billion per year for poverty related assistance to Walmart workers and their families. Um, just to give you a contrast, so Costco is in the same general type of work. The average Costco employee, according to the things that I read, Costco pays $21 an hour, not including overtime and not including the $5,000 bonus that they give to employees who've worked five or more years with the company. 90% of Costco's employees are eligible for their benefits plan, which includes health, vision, dental, and 401k. Now, which of those two do you think is operating more Christianly? Which of those two is more likely to receive the stamp and seal of approval of, of Jesus Christ? And you could say that the, Wal- the, the Walmart, that's what market rates are, but I mean, surely a Christian employer is going to think about things differently. This is especially important given the city that we live in. My impression of Boise, I mean, we love Boise. That's why we're here. But this is a low-wage city. 
I have so many people in my congregation who are employed, but, but they're barely making it on their wages. And you could say, well, that's what the local market is. That's what I just, I challenge you, those of you who are in HR, those of you who hire, fire employees, those of you who are entrepreneurs, you really need to wrestle with the question of, of what would Jesus Christ call me to do in terms of, of paying a fair wage to my, to the, to my workers. I, it was Milton Friedman, the economist, who said, famously, back in 1970, he said that the only social responsibility that a company, a business has, is to provide maximum value of return to your shareholders. That's it. The only stakeholders in your company are the shareholders. And that, at the end of the day, the only thing that really, really matters with a business, the bottom line is the bottom line. It, it's profit, and that is so at odds, I believe, with what the Scriptures actually teach. So at odds with this vision that Paul is laying out. To put it into a nutshell, so nutshell, um, Paul would say, he would call Christian employers to be generous in their wages, in their working hours, and their benefits. He would call Christian managers to be generous in their investment in the lives of the employees and actually strive to humanize the work environment. He would call Christian owners to be willing to take less personal profit, to be willing to live more modestly so that they could uh, advance the lives of others. Last thing I want to say is... um, Verse 8, you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. In verse 9, there is no favoritism with him. I, we, we do, I'm sure you, you know that God is no respecter of persons. Like, he doesn't care what degrees are hanging on our wall, and he doesn't care what our job description reads on our business cards, or whether or not we even have business cards. He, he's no respecter of persons. He's, he's impartial. He does not, he, does, he treats no one different on the basis of race, class, job status, education. Class distinctions don't matter much with God. And, and he says, I'm going to call every one of you to account for what you've done, and I'm going to reward every one of you for whatever good you do whether you, is, you are a slave or, uh, or whether you are free. Like one day in heaven, you'll have a Christian who works for the state of Idaho, just like middle management, middle management bureaucrat for the state of Idaho, Idaho, kind of small little cog in the big state wheel. One day in heaven, that person is going to be elevated above a Christian CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And it's going to be because God's going to reward him for every, for every good that he did in the marketplace. The same is true. One day in heaven, there's going to be a Christian athlete, a guy who has recorded and enjoyed all kinds of accolades and money in this life. And he's going to actually, he's going to be rewarded even more than what he had in this life. And then there's also going to be a Christian CPA and, and he's, going to get just a little bit of tepid applause for his efforts because one man 
was he just had that one singular purpose. I will serve my master. One single aim in life, which is to please my Lord and master. Uh, And I just want you to know that nothing goes unrewarded with Jesus Christ. So somebody said, did I already say it in my sermon? Probably did. Don't think of your career as your career and your your boss as your boss. (laughs) And don't think of your reward here as your reward. If people aren't noticing the good work that you're doing, you're not getting promoted like you think you should be, you're not getting advancement in, in the company, nobody's paying any attention, nobody's noticing. Yes, Paul says, somebody somebody absolutely notices. Uh, we, we planted a plum tree in the front of the Cheney house a couple of years ago. I don't know what possessed us to... It has to be one of the dirtiest trees in, in the city. We've got an ornamental pear in the front, which is really dirty, messy. And then we got a plum tree that is planted too close to the house. And it fills the gutters with, right now, it's filling it with, with red leaves. If I were to say to my, my little tykes, Anya and Kaya, if you go out and you rake the leaves for the whole of the day, I'm going to give you $25. I'm going to take you out to dinner with Dad. We're going to your favorite restaurant. Yeah. Would it be wrong for Anya and Kaya to like look forward to that reward? No. It, it would actually be insulting if they didn't. If they went out into the, and started raking leaves all day and they came in and said, I don't, I don't really care. 25 bucks and dinner with Dad doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> I would be insulted by that. No. And when Jesus just said, I will reward you. How conscious are you of that? Monday through Friday. It was Hebrews eleven twenty five twenty six. Moses remained faithful to God because he was looking ahead to his reward. And you know, that's what, when it is all said and done, To some people, God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in little, and I am going to to appoint you over. um, Now I will give you charge of many and of much. And and the rewards that accompany that, that's what you and I should be striving for. I'm, I'm not ashamed at all to say, strive for that reward. That commendation and the rewards that are accompanying it, that should be what we want more than anything else in this world. We should yearn for that, to hear those words and to receive that uh, reward. We, we need to go to our jobs on Monday confident that our master sees that we're not working for the man, but we're working for the man. <laughs> and nothing will go unrewarded by the man, Christ Jesus. Amen.